Chapter 9 of The Works of the Right Honorable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. The Works of the Right Honorable Edmund Burke, Volume 1 by Edmund Burke. Sections 12 to 22 of Part 2. Section 12. Difficulty. Another source of greatness is difficulty. Footnote 21, Part 4, Section 4, 5, 6. End of footnote. When any work seems to have acquired immense force and labor to effect it, the idea is grand. Stonehenge, neither for disposition nor ornament, has anything admirable. But those huge rude masses of stone, set on end, and piled each on other, turn the mind on the immense force necessary for such a work. Nay, the rudeness of the work increases this cause of grandeur, as it excludes the idea of art and contrivance. For dexterity produces another sort of effect, which is different enough from this. Section 13. Magnificence. Magnificence is likewise a source of the sublime. A great profusion of things, which are splendid or valuable in themselves, is magnificent. The starry heaven, though it occurs so very frequently to our view, never fails to excite an idea of grandeur. This cannot be owing to the stars themselves, separately considered. The number is certainly the cause. The apparent disorder augments the grandeur, for the appearance of care is highly contrary to our ideas of magnificence. Besides, the stars lie in such apparent confusion as makes it impossible on ordinary occasions to reckon them. This gives them the advantage of a sort of infinity. In works of art, this kind of grandeur, which consists in multitude, is to be very cautiously admitted, because the profusion of excellent things is not to be attained with too much difficulty, and because in many cases this splendid confusion would destroy all use, which should be attended to in most of the works of art with the greatest care. Besides, it is to be considered that unless you can produce an appearance of infinity by your disorder, you will have disorder only without magnificence. There are, however, a sort of fireworks and some other things that in this way succeed well and are truly grand. There are also many descriptions in the poets and orators which owe their sublimity to a richness and profusion of images, in which the mind is so dazzled as to make it impossible to attend to that exact coherence and agreement of the illusions which we should require on every other occasion. I do not now remember a more striking example of this than the description which is given of the king's army in the play of Henry the Fourth: All furnished shed, all in arms, all plumed like ostriches that with the wind, baited like eagles having lately bathed, as full of spirit us the month of May, and gorgeous as the sun in midsummer. Wanton as youthful goats, wild as young bulls. I saw young Harry with his beaver on, rise from the ground like feathered mercury, and vaulted with such ease into his seat, as if an angel dropped down from the clouds to turn and wind a fiery pegasus. In that excellent book, so remarkable for the vivacity of its descriptions, as well as the solidity and penetration of its sentences, the wisdom of the son of Sirach, there is a noble panegyric on the high priest Simon, the son of Onias and it is a very fine example of the point before us. How was he honored in the midst of the people, in his coming out of the sanctuary? He was as the morning star in the midst of a cloud, and as the moon at the full, as the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and as the rainbow giving light in the bright clouds, and as the flower of roses in the spring of the year, as lilies by the rivers of waters, and as the frankincense tree in summer, as fire and incense in the censer, and as a vessel of gold set with precious stones, as a fair olive tree budding forth fruit, and as a cypress which groweth up to the clouds. When he put on the robe of honor, and was clothed with the perfection of glory, when he went up to the holy altar, 
he made the garment of holiness honorable. He himself stood by the hearth of the altar, compassed with his brethren round about, as a young cedar in Libanus, and as palm trees compassed they him about. So were all the sons of Aaron in their glory, and the oblations of the Lord in their hands, etc. Section 14. Light. Having considered extension, so far as it is capable of raising ideas of greatness, color comes next under consideration. All colors depend on light. Light, therefore, ought previously to be examined, and with it its opposite, darkness. With regard to light, to make it a cause capable of producing the sublime, it must be attended with some circumstances. Besides its bare faculty of showing other objects, mere light is too common a thing to make a strong impression on the mind, and without a strong impression nothing can be sublime. But such a light as that of the sun, immediately exerted on the eye, as it overpowers the sense, is a very great idea. Light of an inferior strength to this, if it moves with great celerity, has the same power, for lightning is certainly productive of grandeur, which it owes chiefly to the extreme velocity of its motion. A quick transition from light to darkness, or from darkness to light, has yet a greater effect, but darkness is more productive of sublime ideas than light. Our great poet was convinced of this, and indeed so full was he of this idea, so entirely possessed with the power of a well-managed darkness, that in describing the appearance of the deity, amidst that profusion of magnificent images, which the grandeur of his subject provokes him to pour out upon every side, he is far from forgetting the obscurity which surrounds the most incomprehensible of all beings, but with majesty of darkness round, circles his throne. And what is no less remarkable, our author had the secret of preserving this idea, even when he seemed to depart the farthest from it. When he describes the light and glory which flows from the divine presence, a light which by its very excess is converted into a species of darkness, dark with excessive light thy skirts appear. Here is an idea not only poetical in a high degree, but strictly and philosophically just. Extreme light, by overcoming the organs of sight, obliterates all objects, so as in its effect exactly to resemble darkness. After looking for some time at the sun, two black spots, the impression which it leaves, seem to dance before our eyes. Thus are two ideas as opposite as can be imagined reconciled in the extremes of both, and both, in spite of their opposite nature, brought to concur in producing the sublime. And this is not the only instance wherein the opposite extremes operate equally in favor of the sublime, which in all things abhors mediocrity. Section 15. Light in Building. As the management of light is a matter of importance in architecture, it is worth inquiring how far this remark is applicable to building. I think, then, that all edifices calculated to produce an idea of the sublime ought rather to be dark and gloomy, and this for two reasons. The first is that darkness itself on other occasions is known by experience to have a greater effect on the passions than light. The second is that to make an object very striking, we should make it as different as possible from the objects with which we have been immediately conversant. When therefore you enter a building, you cannot pass into a greater light than you had in the open air. To go into one some few degrees less luminous can make only a trifling change, but to make the transition thoroughly striking, you ought to pass from the greatest light to as much darkness as is consistent with the uses of architecture. At night, the contrary rule will hold, but for the very same reason, and the more highly a room is then illuminated, the grander will the passion be. Section 16. Color considered as productive of the sublime. Among colors, such as are soft or cheerful, except perhaps a strong red, which is cheerful, are unfit to produce grand images. An immense mountain covered with a shining green turf is nothing in this respect to one dark and gloomy. 
The cloudy sky is more grand than the blue, and night more sublime and solemn than day. Therefore, in historical painting, a gay or gaudy drapery can never have a happy effect, and in buildings, when the highest degree of the sublime is intended, the materials and ornaments ought neither to be white, nor green, nor yellow, nor blue, nor of a pale red, nor violet, nor spotted, but of sad and fuscous colors, as black or brown, or deep purple, and the like. Much of gilding, mosaics, painting, or statues contribute but little to the sublime. This rule need not be put in practice, except where an uniform degree of the most striking sublimity is to be produced, and that in every particular. For it ought to be observed that this melancholy kind of greatness, though it be certainly the highest, ought not to be studied in all sorts of edifices, where yet grandeur must be studied. In such cases, the sublimity must be drawn from the other sources, with a strict caution, however, against anything light and riant, as nothing so effectually deadens the whole taste of the sublime. Section 17. Sound and Loudness. The eye is not the only organ of sensation by which a sublime passion may be produced. Sounds have a great power in these, as in most other passions. I do not mean words, because words do not affect simply by their sounds, but by means altogether different. Excessive loudness alone is sufficient to overpower the soul, to suspend its action, and to fill it with terror. The noise of vast cataracts, raging storms, thunder, or artillery, awakes a great and awful sensation in the mind, though we can observe no nicety or artifice in those sorts of music. The shouting of multitudes has a similar effect, and by the sole strength of the sound, so amazes and confounds the imagination, that in the staggering and hurry of the mind, the best established tempers can scarcely forbear being borne down, and joining in the common cry, and common resolution of the crowd. Section 18. Suddenness. A sudden beginning, or sudden cessation of sound of any considerable force, has the same power. The attention is roused by this, and the faculties driven forward, as it were, on their guard. Whatever, either in sights or sounds, makes the transition from one extreme to the other easy, causes no terror, and consequently can be no cause of greatness. In everything sudden and unexpected, we are apt to start. That is, we have a perception of danger, and our nature rouses us to guard against it. It may be observed that a single sound of some strength, though but of short duration, if repeated after intervals, has a grand effect. Few things are more awful than the striking of a great clock, when the silence of the night prevents the attention from being too much dissipated. The same may be said of a single stroke on a drum, repeated but pauses, and of the successive firing of cannon at a distance. All the effects mentioned in this section have causes very nearly alike. Section 19. Intermitting. A low, tremulous, intermitting sound, though it seems, in some respects, opposite to that just mentioned, is productive of the sublime. It is worthwhile to examine this a little. The fact itself must be determined by every man's own experience and reflection. I have already observed that nights, footnote 22, section 3, end of footnote, increases our terror more perhaps than anything else. It is our nature, when we do not know what may happen to us, to fear the worst that can happen. And hence it is that uncertainty is so terrible, that we often seek to be rid of it, at the hazard of a certain mischief. Now some low, confused, uncertain sounds leave us in the same fearful anxiety concerning their causes, that no light, or an uncertain light, does concerning the objects that surround us. Quali per incertum lunum sub lucha maligna esita in silvis. A faint shadow of uncertain light, like as a lamp whose life doth fade away, or as the moon clothed with cloudy night, 
dost show to him who walks in fear and great affright. Spencer. But light now appearing, and now leaving us, and so off and on, is even more terrible than total darkness, and a sort of uncertain sounds are, when the necessary dispositions concur, more alarming than a total silence. Section 20. The cries of animals. Such sounds as imitate the natural inarticulate voices of men, or any animals in pain or danger, are capable of conveying great ideas, unless it be the well-known voice of some creature, on which we are used to look with contempt. The angry tones of wild beasts are equally capable of causing a great and awful sensation. Inc exaudiri gemitu irac leonum, vincia recusantum, et cetera sub nocta rudantum. Seti gerex suas atque in precipibus osi, se vera et formae magnorum ululari luporum. It might seem that those modulations of sound carry some connection with the nature of the things they represent, and are not merely arbitrary, because the natural cries of all animals, even of those animals with whom we have not been acquainted, never fail to make themselves sufficiently understood. This cannot be said of language. The modifications of sound, which may be productive of the sublime, are almost infinite. Those I have mentioned are only a few instances to show on what principles they are all built. Section 21. Smell and Taste, Bitters and Stenches. Smells and tastes have some share, too, in ideas of greatness, but it is a small one, weak in its nature, and confined in its operations. I shall only observe that no smells or tastes can produce a grand sensation, except excessive bitters, and intolerable stenches. It is true that these affections of the smell and taste, when they are in their full force, and lean directly upon the sensory, are simply painful, and accompanied with no sort of delight. But when they are moderated, as in a description or narrative, they become sources of the sublime, as genuine as any other, and upon the very same principle of moderated pain. The cup of bitterness, to drain the bitter cup of fortune, the bitter apples of Sodom. These are all ideas suitable to a sublime description, nor is this passage of Virgil without sublimity, where the stench of the vapor in Abunia conspires so happily with the sacred horror and gloominess of that prophetic forest. At rex solicitis monstris oracula fauni. Fatidici genitoris adit lucus subalta, consulit abunia nemorum quae maxima sacro, fonte sonat sovamque exalat opaca mefitim. In the sixth book, and in a very sublime description, the poisonous exhalation of Acheron is not forgotten, nor does it at all disagree with the other images amongst which it is introduced. Spelunca alta fuit. Vastok imanis iatu, scrupea tutalacu nigro, nemorum catenibus, quam super oule poterant impune volantes, tendere iter penis, talus sese alitis atris, faucibus effundens supera, ad convexa ferbata. I have added these examples because some friends, for whose judgment I have great deference, were of opinion that if the sentiment stood nakedly by itself, it would be subject, at first view, to burlesque and ridicule. But this, I imagine, would principally arise from considering the bitterness and stench in company with mean and contemptible ideas, with which, they must be owned, they are often united. Such an union degrades the sublime in all other instances, as well as in those. But it is one of the tests by which the sublimity of an image is to be tried, not whether it becomes mean when associated with mean ideas, but whether, when united with images of an allowed grandeur, 
The whole composition is supported by dignity. Things which are terrible are always great, but when things possess disagreeable qualities, or such as have indeed some degree of danger, but of a danger easily overcome, they are merely odious, as toads and spiders. Section 22. Feeling. Pain. Of feeling little more can be said than that the idea of bodily pain, in all the modes and degrees of labor, pain, anguish, torment, is productive of the sublime, and nothing else in this sense can produce it. I need not give here any fresh instances, as those given in the former sections abundantly illustrate a remark that in reality wants only an attention to nature to be made by everybody. Having thus run through the causes of the sublime with reference to all the senses, my first observation, section 7, will be found very nearly true, that the sublime is an idea belonging to self-preservation, that it is, therefore, one of the most affecting we have, that its strongest emotion is an emotion of distress, and that no pleasure, footnote 23, Vita, part 1, section 6, end of footnote, from a positive cause, belongs to it. Numberless examples, besides those mentioned, might be brought in support of these truths, and many perhaps useful consequences drawn from them. Sed fugit interea, fugit irrevocabile tempus, singula dum capti, circumvecta muramore. End of chapter 9, part 2. Recording by Arden.